real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is May 22nd, 2020. It's Friday. And yesterday, uh, for a throwback Thursday, it's always on a Thursday, right, that we get like this really spicy stuff. And then we get a prelude to like the next week on Friday. Now, there is a lot going on. A lot going on. Like... (sighs) I don't even know where to start and we're getting distractions from here, there and everywhere. So today I'm going to talk, we're going to talk coronavirus and contract tracers. That's a really important topic because for some reason, governors have embraced a company called Partners in Health. It's almost as if it's like the Clinton Health Initiative, uh, you know, from the Clinton Foundation, uh, revamped in another way. It was supposedly founded by another doctor, but they've done a lot of work in Africa. They do a lot of work everywhere. And now, uh, you know, they've actually labeled Open Society of George Soros as one of their key partners. And we have governors teaming up with them and their whole agenda is trying to push for global universal health care, hating on capitalism. It is the most insane thing I've ever seen. And, you know, one might say, well, we must, you know, have faith that everything will work out. No, you know, yes, but that doesn't mean sit on your hands and trust the plan. You're part of the plan. You need to be active. You need to make your voice heard because it's not going to be these clowns on TV from CNN to Fox to anywhere. It's not going to be the blue check marks. It's going to be you. It's you, you, you. So I want you to listen to Ingram's piece from yesterday about contract tracers. It is key because she says a few things that we need to talk about so we can elaborate. Now, after that, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the swamp. We're going to talk more foggy bottom. See, we've been talking about everyone at the State Department here, but we're going to get down and dirty with Linick. I'm going to reveal to you today how he did what he did. And I'm pretty sure someone out there knows this. And I'm pretty sure you know, the intelligence community can find this, right? I'm pretty sure. But, you know, the only person that would have helped us find this, realize it, and see it is the IG of the NSA, who obviously is keeping his mouth shut. Ergo, we need to open up ours. So let's take a listen. Let's start on this contract tracing because this is really, really important. But... Given the challenges that we face today, a reminder of why we celebrate. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, earlier today, a good friend of mine and I were talking about How surprising it was that so many Americans were willing to give up their inalienable rights for a government promise of safety. Basic liberties, the right to work, to travel, to worship, free speech, the right to attend school, to petition the government, to assemble with others. They all were completely sidelined or partially sidelined during the COVID-19 shutdowns. Officials assured us that restrictions would be short-lived and only be in place until we flatten the curve. But even after we did that, and hospitals thankfully were not overrun, blue state governors began piling on new conditions in order for states to be fully reopened again. 
They had complicated requirements in a New York uh, 51-page reopening document. Michigan, then Illinois and Washington State, they seem hell-bent on keeping people immobile and scared as long as possible. And now they found a new excuse for delay. The need for hundreds of thousands of so-called contact tracers. The point of this is to create a core of trained folks who are ready and able, have the skills we need them to have to help usher us all through the new environment. I know a lot of you don't answer the phone when you see an unknown caller reaching in, but I implore you to answer that call. We want to grow our voluntary contact tracing so that we can further control and reduce the rate of spread of COVID-19 and stop outbreaks in their tracks. Yeah, I trust him. Well, what TSA was to post the post 9-11 era, contact tracing is to the COVID era. It's all for our own good and protection. That's what they say. And it seems fine at first until maybe like when you're talking about TSA, an agent's hand gets a little too close to your private parts during a random screening. And then they throw away your favorite moisturizer, right? Because it's too many ounces. But at least your interaction with a TSA agent is brief and limited to only when you fly. Your interaction with a COVID tracer could last for weeks, if not longer. According to the AP, the practice of so-called contact tracing requires a hybrid job of interrogator, therapist, and nurse as they try to coax nervous people to be honest. The goal? to create a roadmap of everywhere infected people have been and who they've been around. That's a heavy lift. So how many of these tracers will we actually need? Health investigator Mackenzie Bray follows a script that she knows all too well. I'm just following up on your COVID-19 test results. Bray is among an army of health professionals and volunteers working as contact tracers. Some health officials estimate that as many as 300,000 contact tracers would be needed in the country to effectively mitigate the spread. Are you kidding me? 300,000? So remember I talked about how this kind of reminds me of the TSA, the creation of the TSA. Well, if the, quote, experts get their way, there will be six times more contact tracers than TSA agents. But instead of rummaging through your luggage, these contact tracers will be prying into the most intimate details of your life. If you're found to have been in the orbit of someone who tested positive for the virus, they could monitor your whereabouts continuously until they determine you're no longer a danger to others. Now, right now, it may be only for 14 days or so, but what happens when the next expert tells us something different? Maybe next week. What about your medical information? It's very personal to you. Well, according to the Tracer Training Program run by Johns Hopkins University that we had a producer actually sign up for today, it's required for tracers hired in New York. Your medical information will be kept confidential, they say, though perhaps not all of it. This is how one slide in that training program puts it. Your medical information cannot be shared with anyone else unless you agree to it. But your COVID-19 test results can be shared to protect public health. Well, why is that? Well, according to Johns Hopkins, it's because, quote, contact tracing programs are a public good. They can reduce illness and deaths from COVID-19. A public good. Again, it sounds fine, I mean, reasonable. 
But I thought in a representative democracy, the people get to determine what is in the, quote, public good. Not unaccountable experts at a university that receives millions of dollars in grant money from billionaires and corporate foundations. Given the enormity of the federal and state expenditures we're talking about here, it's amazing how little debate there's been about the risk to personal privacy. I'm telling you, there are always going to be plenty of reasons cited by government bureaucrats or unelected technocrats uh, to justify taking your freedoms away. They'll cite scary things like gun violence, climate change, and now, of course, COVID, maybe the next virus. And they'll use our fear and maybe even skewed statistics or bad modeling to manipulate the public perception. They'll find experts who insist that the harm to personal privacy is minimal and that any trade-off is worth it. They'll promise their actions will be temporary and narrowly tailored. But invariably, these new programs, like what we saw after 9-11, will become permanent fixtures in American life and end up expanding far beyond their promised goals. I think back of the creation of the FISA court, the Patriot Act, just to name a few. Next thing you know, bad actors use them as weapons against innocent people. And they almost managed to undo a presidential election. The government can use a variety of tools to enforce its new normal. Using self-assessment tools is the least concerning, I think, from a personal privacy standpoint. But then there are these location devices using a variety of technological tools to monitor you. Yesterday, Google and Apple unveiled a phone app that lets you know when you've been exposed to someone who's COVID positive. And 22 countries have already signed on to use the app. Now the tech giants did craft this app with user privacy in mind. So we'll give them a thumbs up for that. But according to the Wall Street Journal, the entire purpose of the app is to, quote, help public health departments track contact between strangers. Personally, I'd take whatever privacy promises, though, that some of these companies are making today with a grain of salt. The fact is, tracking technology can have a terrible chilling effect on individual freedom and even expression. The Supreme Court noted this a few years ago in its landmark ruling to enforce location data protections. The court in Carpenter versus the United States said detailed travel and location data provides an intimate window into a person's life, revealing not only his particular movements, but through them, his familial, political, professional, religious, and sexual associations. And remember, those seemingly helpful COVID tracking apps are themselves windows into your life. Servers could be hacked, data stolen, and generally the data is, is available ultimately to anyone for theft or purchase. Advertisers, cyber criminals, even political adversaries, and so on. So can the government, federal or state, really ensure that our data not be accessible to any of the above? Of course the answer is no. You'd be naive to think otherwise. They could perhaps mandate, though, that the health information only be available to health authorities. But given how wrong so many of their health experts have been lately, you really can't blame Americans who have severe reservations about trusting them with their private medical information. Back to our declaration. Our framers were really smart. Thomas Jefferson used that word inalienable to describe our rights for a reason. Americans are born free. 
We don't get our rights from the government, and the government can never take them away. The government may sometimes force us to make sacrifices, but not indefinitely, and not without a serious debate over what is, in fact, absolutely necessary to preserve the lives of others. To preserve the lives of uh, the lives uh, and the lies of others. So the contract, the, the contact tracing group is not something new. I told you that the apps that the governor of North Dakota created were being incorporated into uh, iPhones and Androids. And this has been all pushed by Soros and uh, Gates. And guess who's on the board? That's right. It's Chelsea Clinton. And so they have created this this group called Partners in Health to conduct the coronavirus contract uh, contact tracing. And what they want to do is put together a bunch of people that will follow you and uh, mandate from you information of where you've been and how you've been if you refuse to download their app. So they want you to give them permission, permission to know everything there is to need to know about you, not just, uh, you know, your um, location, but more. And that is the concern. Now, there was a journalist yesterday that actually had the cojones to ask the governor of Ohio why he is partnering with partners in health that are anti-capitalist. I want you guys to hear this because it is very, very important that the right questions are asked when these things go through. We do not need foreign influence and George Soros is foreign influence. So any organization receiving funds from any organization outside of the United States influencing their agenda, which happens to be very Chinese influenced, should not be allowed to operate on any level of government within the United States. In, in that community, that really, I think, is, is, is the key for us. So you have a short term, you know, so that we can see results long term. I mean, look, I mean, the, 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 our, our goal is to do this as long as I'm governor. Uh, and to do this, we hope for many years. Uh, but the short-term goal is obviously focused on the COVID-19. And, 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 you know, we want to make sure services are out there. We want to make sure that the message is getting to uh, the Hispanic community. We want to make, as well as the African-American community and every other community uh, in the state, we want to make sure not only is the messaging, but, the, but when we, you know, continue to try to upgrade and up this amount of testing uh, as we're committed to do. We want to make sure it gets the to those communities as well. We don't want them to be underrepresented in that testing. Thank you, Governor. Thank you very much. All right, guys, here's the big bombshell question. This is what we need to keep asking all of them. Jack Windsor, WMFD-TV, Mansfield. Uh, Governor, I'm the last question, and uh, my question is for you. And it's going to be a very sensitive question, and I'm going to do my best to be intentional so that it's not misrepresented. Uh, today, it sounds as, as if we're pivoting from COVID to larger social issues like housing, education, and transportation. Uh, I know in past pressers, we've learned about Dr. Paul Farmer and Partners in Health working with us on contact tracing. 
Uh, looking at the Partners in Health website, contact tracing seems to be part of a larger social agenda for Partners in Health. Uh, the site states a, a vision to rectify, quote, structural violence of capitalism, which the organization sees as the root cause of things such as uh, racism, gender inequality, xenophobia, and homophobia. Now, I'm not questioning the injustice of those things, Governor, so let me be very clear about that. What my question is, can you tell us why you chose to partner with an organization that demonizes capitalism and seems to be rooted in liberation theology based on Marxist ideals? Well, I've never uh, always agreed with Paul Farmer, uh, who started it, and uh, m many of his ideas. Uh, but he, he and the organization have had an ability to deliver health services. Uh, I'm, my wife, Fran, and I are very familiar with this in Haiti. Uh, we've, we've seen what he has done in Haiti. We've visited Haiti over, over 20 times. And so that's just something that we do in our private lives. And so the partners with health, we don't, you don't have to accept the ideology uh, 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 of Paul or anybody else. But what I'm interested in is, is getting things done. And they're not the ones who are doing it on the ground. Uh, the people who are going to be doing it on the ground are Ohioans. Uh, but, the, you know, they, they serve as a consultant. Uh, they have done this type of work, um, not only in the United States, but, but around the world. Uh, they're pretty darn good at it. And so I'm going to take help from wherever I can get help and where I find expertise. I, I don't have to agree with everyone's uh, ideology or, or what they think about uh, everything in the world and to, to, to accept that, to be able to use their help. Uh, we're in a war. We're in a battle. We're going to put the best people we can on the field. Uh, the best people are the Ohioans, but we're going to get, we're going to get some help from this group because uh, they've done some of these things before. And is the tracing mandatory? Absolutely not. Look. Look, none of this has historically been mandatory. This is all voluntary. And look, all we're trying to do, if someone uh, tests positive for COVID-19, I don't think there's any Ohioan that I know that would not want to try to inform people who... Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't tell you any of my business. So key things here, Haiti. Governor DeWine, we didn't know about your shenanigans in Haiti. Thanks a lot. Now we have a lot of digging to do. But partners in health, influencing our responses to COVID-19 with foreign interference. This is foreign interference. And he's done this before. Ask yourself, where has he done this before? Where have partners in health done this contact tracing before? That is the question you need to ask yourself. Where has this been done before? That is the answer to everything. I don't have time to get into that today because we have a lot to talk about. But that is the question that everyone should ask themselves. What is it that they have done before in respects to contact tracing? I'm uh, uh, not understanding. Now, contact tracing, so you know, uh, is already, okay, this group, Partners in Health, is already training and deploying hundreds of contract tracers, hundreds of them. Now, um, on the national file, uh, Partners in Health involvement, uh, you know, is receiving funding from the Bill Gates um, and Melinda, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and also Open Society. They clearly stated on their website that George Soros's Open society is an official partner. Wait a minute. That's foreign interference. And hold on a second. Why do we have Killary's daughter sitting on the board? This is a big problem.
So you want to know where they've done this before? Rwanda. You want to know where else they've done it before? I'm just going to name Sierra Leone, Ethiopia. There's tons. They've actually worked with people for contact tracing and it's not for disease. So just like Laura Ingram said, uh, they're just going to tell you health authorities. So who are the health authorities that you will be providing your information to? Does anybody know? Obviously not, because that is a very broad brush that they can use to uh, share information wherever they want. So this perspective, people that are Karens are uh, super, uh, you know, excited about this because this is a well-paying job. Uh, Actually, contact tracers in New York City uh, who are applying have to understand institutional and structural racism. Are you kidding? You have to be well-versed in LGBTQ, uh, you know, societal things. You have to be PC and you have to understand how to do this. There's actually Actually, a job posting from Columbia University that says the Fund for Public Health in New York City, in partnership with New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, are seeking contact tracers to perform case interviews and contract tracing to support a citywide COVID-19 response using trauma-informed, culturally respectful approach that builds trust and facilitates the free sharing of information, which obviously is voluntary. People are so dumb. They have people, businesses, let's put it this way, that have been convinced that every single person coming in must wear a mask. Again, it is an accessory, not a requirement because first of all, research shows that wearing a mask will not save you. Wearing a face covering will not save you and will not save anyone else. It is like, you know, just like a placebo thing. It's totally placebo, completely placebo, completely And so now they're mandating in certain businesses to do that. That is a title violation because that requires someone who cannot wear a mask due to respiratory issues or whatever else to have their rights violated by having to go to a store and wear some specific sticker or have a paper that says, I'm sick. I shouldn't have to do that. Neither should you. This is the United States of America, and nowhere does it say that you must comply. This does not show that it will help anyone. So why are we doing this? That is the question. Why are we doing this? This is all about control. This has nothing to do with your health. Nobody cares about your health. This is about you being controlled, complete control. So now I wanted to play a clip from, uh, you know, uh, Fox Phoenix, which had uh, the press secretary talk about hydroxychloroquine. That was very interesting. And mail-in ballots, because we got to get with these mailing ballots. This is the reason they want us to wear masks. One, to condition us to be afraid. And two, because they want to steal the elections.
Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to begin by detailing the historic private-public partnership effort launched by the Trump administration to combat the coronavirus. As both a businessman and as president, you'll all remember uh, then-candidate Donald Trump, now President Donald Trump, being adamant about bringing manufacturing jobs back to America. President Obama and the Democrats had given up on manufacturing with President Obama's erroneously prediction that Trump would need a magic wand in order to bring back American jobs. Not so. The reality is President Trump revived manufacturing in this country and he tore up disastrous trade deals that hemorrhaged American jobs like NAFTA and like the plan that was in work, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Instead, he put in place better trade deals to bring back American jobs and to bring back American manufacturing. And in the battle against the invisible enemy, President Trump took action to shore up our domestic supply chains in order to deliver the necessary PPE and other medical equipment to the state. Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats are currently promoting a $3 trillion liberal witch list among a litany of Democrat priorities immaterial to the coronavirus crisis are embedded in this, and one would require the president to appoint a, quote, medical supplies response coordinator who would, quote, serve as the point of contact for the health care system, supply chain officials, and the states on medical supplies. I'm happy to report this individual already exists. This bill ignores reality because the medical supplies official is in existence. He's been working on this since March to deliver uh, to date over billions and billion, more than one billion, I should say, pieces of PPE to countries and hospitals across the country. Since March 29th, Rear Admiral John Plovchek, Vice Director for Logistics for the Joint Chiefs, has been on the job as the head of FEMA's Supply Chain Stabilization Task Force. This is a historic partnership with the private sector and under the leadership of President Trump, FEMA directed the greatest mobilization of the private sector since World War II. Rear Admiral Polovchek and FEMA quickly realized the power of the private sector in addressing the coronavirus, recognizing that the six largest private sector medical distributors would have the ability to source, procure, manufacture, and deliver as many as one billion pieces of PPE in a single week. That is ex extraordinary volume by our private sector. And at the direction of President President Trump, Rear Admiral Plovchek and FEMA were able to harness this power. Every day at 9 a.m., Rear Admiral Plovchek's team huddles with the six large private sector medical distributors, and together they review data compiled by Dr. Burks as well as information provided by the CDC to set priorities and ensure sufficient levels of supplies go down not just to the county level but to the hospital level. After focusing geographically, Rear Admiral Plovchek and his team orients the data to set point-of-care distribution priorities for public hospitals, VA and DOD facilities, private hospitals, nursing homes, acute—excuse me—acute care clinics, first responders, and labs. In just two and a half weeks, Rear Admiral Plovchek and his team were able to combine data streams, utilize supply chain visualiz visualization tools from DOD, and input data into the cloud. This system is now available to generate reports for governors showing what their state received from the federal government and commercial partners all the way down to the hospital level, as I noted. And thanks to President Trump and his administration, governors now have visibility as to where their supplies are sent and where they're received. And from March 
1st through May 10th, this public-private partnership has led to the delivery, and these are extraordinary numbers, of over 113 million N95 respirator masks, nearly half a billion surgical masks, nearly 18 million face shields, and over 12 billion gloves. Uh, that is a lot of PPE, and we thank our private sector partners for engaging in this effort with us. Also, I just wanted to note that earlier today, the president held an hour-long call with thousands of Hispanic community, business, and faith leaders across the country. He recognized the many contributions of the Hispanic community to our country and addressed important issues like how to reopen their businesses and build the greatest economy in history again. And finally, before I take questions, I just wanted to note on a separate note that I wanted to acknowledge the passing of Ravi Zacharias, a renowned Christian apologist who left this world yesterday. Our prayers are with Ravi's family during this time. He meant a lot to a lot of people around this administration. And as my father said, Billy Graham was the great evangelist and Ravi Zacharias um, was the great apologist. And uh, we are all thinking about him and holding him close to our hearts and his family today. And with that, I'll take questions. John. Kaylee, um, what does the president believe is illegal about the Secretary of State of Michigan sending out absentee ballot applications, and what federal funding is he considering withholding from the state of Michigan as a result? So, you know, I won't get into exactly what the funding considerations are. I would note that his tweets were meant to alert Secretary Mnuchin um, and Mr. Vogt about, um, head of OMB, about um, uh, his concerns with trillions of dollars going to these states and his noted concerns about um, a lot of fraud that is potentially at play when you have mass mail-in voting. So with regard to the illegality and legality of it, um, that's a question for the campaign as to their voting and ballot practices. But I would just note that his tweet was meant to alert OMB. He wanted to be very careful as we send trillions of dollars to states um, that we keep this important point in mind and we ensure that there's fairness um, in our voting system and absolute accuracy. Wait for it, wait for it. The price is amazing. And you get to try it for a whole year. This is so comfy. It is literally my favorite mattress. I love it! Be unstoppable with an MB. has voted just two months ago by a mail-in ballot. There are several Republican states that are also doing these mail-in applications for ballots. And so I'm confused. What is it that he thinks is illegal that's happening in Michigan? He doesn't really specify. So first, with regard to the president doing a mail-in vote, um, the president is, after all, the president, which means he's here in Washington. He's unable to cast his vote down in Florida, his, res his state of residence. Uh, so for him, that's why he had to do a mail-in vote. But he supports mail-in voting for a reason, when you have a reason that you are unable to be present, there's right now, we're very far from November 3rd. I would, I'm glad that you have the prediction tool and you can tell us what will be happening on November 3rd, 2020. I certainly don't, nor does the president. coming up and that's like what's happening in Nevada. I would, I would also, I assume you care about fairness and accuracy in our elections, do you not? Of course I do. Of course. There's evidence that there is widespread so voter fraud. There, so there's evidence.
evidence, um, you can go look this up on ProPublica, there is a bipartisan consensus on the fact that mass mail-in voting can lead to fraud. There was a 2005 commission by none other than President Carter, who's not a member of the Republican Party, um, and also James Baker about this, concluding that these ballots, quote, remain the largest source of potential voter fraud. So this is a concern. The president's right to look at this. We want a free and fair election, and that's his concern. Yes, see? Uh, Kelly, uh, on this subject, and one other on a different one, the president deleted his first tweet, which uh, alleged falsehood that the state of Michigan was sending out absentee ballots to everybody. In fact, they sent out absentee ballot requests. Was the president misinformed this morning? And why is he only directing uh, this message toward Michigan, not other states like Georgia and others that are sending similar absentee ballot requests to their citizens? So the president corrected his tweet, as you noted, um, and with regard to going state by state and looking at ballots and the way they're distributed, that would be a question for the Trump campaign, and I'd refer you to the campaign on that point. And then, uh, Tim, on the G7, uh, do you have any more details on the time when the president would like to, that, to schedule that here in Washington? And does that mean that travel restrictions that are currently in place on, uh, on travel from, uh, from Europe, from China, and other places would potentially be relaxed uh, before that meeting would take place here? So I won't get into the mechanics of how that would happen. I would note that the president really wants to see the G7 happen here in Washington as we begin not just to reopen the country, but as the world begins to reopen. Um, he'd like to see it happen sometime in June, but as to a particular date, I don't have any announcement on that front or to the mechanisms of how we'd make that work. Yes. Thanks, Kaylee. A couple of questions for you. One, does President Trump support the CDC guidelines that were released over the weekend? And if so, why were they released so quietly? Why not talk about them, roll them out here from the podium? So the CDC guidelines, there was a 60-page document that came out last night that I assume you're referencing. Um, that document, I talked I talked to Dr. Redfield earlier today about it, and much of that was already out there. So appendixes A, B, C, and D had been out there for a while. Appendix E, um, he said he thinks got posted sometime late last week. Um, and again, these were his rough estimates he was giving me. Um, Appendix F was being discussed, um, and there was constructive criticism of it through the task force and the interagency process. So that was refined. And um, my point in sharing that with you is that the 60-page document was merely an aggregation of a lot of what was already out there. So it's not as if this was new information uh, that we were announcing, but it was um, more guidance pursuant to our reopening of America guidance that was issued um, several weeks ago. Does the president support the guidelines? Does he think Americans should follow those guidelines, or should they be following the initial guidelines that you rolled out here from the post? So the president's been very clear. He supports the reopening of America guidelines. The CDC guidelines are in concert with those guidelines. Um, he wants to safely reopen this country. It's very important we do so, and it's um, good to see that most states, I think basically all of them have plans at this point to reopen, and we're starting to see the safe reopening of several states and Americans getting back to work. Well, okay. So let's talk about this reopening, you guys. So um, one thing that we've noticed is that face masks are being demanded to be worn. Now, face masks, as we know, are not actually protective gear. Uh, they have been proven to be ineffective, actually. So the question is, why is it that we have them demanding that we wear face masks? That's the question. Why are they demanding it? They want us to submit. They want us to show it. So if, um, you know, why are we supposed to mandatorily wear these? Ask yourselves, why do we have to wear this? Why could you get fired for not wearing a mask? That is a violation. What's next? They're going to tell you that you have to wear a hat. Or what if you are in a predominant Muslim community? And if you're a woman, you have to wear a head covering to enter. Will you sue the owner for telling you that you must wear a head covering? 
Yes or no? Of course you will. I mean, here they sued a cake decorator who said, you know, it's my business. I don't want to have to, uh, you know, bake a cake for someone that's gay. And that's my choice. But he was sued. So why can't we sue any any entity that mandates that we wear a mask, a face covering that does not protect you. In fact, it makes you sicker by wearing it. People are so dumb. People are so dumb. Seriously, I'm sorry, I have to say it. If you think that a face covering, a scarf, or a mask that you make out of a silk scarf, Pelosi, of Donna Coran is going to save you, then, you know, you're just, you're, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, you're probably the one that needs to follow instructions every time you get on a plane how to put the seatbelt on. You know, you shouldn't be on a plane if you don't know how to buckle a seatbelt, period. And you shouldn't be walking out in public if you think that a mask is going to save you. This is ridiculous. This is a violation, and it's a title violation because they're forcing you to either um, have some identifying documentation exempting you from wearing it or refusing you services. Now, your taxpayer dollars are deductions that they get because they have brick-and-mortar stores to to provide services. So for all those idiots out there that sit and say, well, if you don't want to wear a mask, then you should just shop online because I don't need this. Okay. Well, then they don't need my tax deduction because I'm not allowed on their premises because they've made this new rule about wearing a face mask and they are getting title deductions and tax deductions, which is my tax dollar that's going towards it. So excuse me, but that's not going to work. This isn't how it happens. Either you allow everybody without discriminating or you don't get tax deductions. And that's the way it works because it's not supposed to be like this. You're not supposed to have this. Now, uh, you know, I can, I can say this until I'm blue in the face, but I see people driving around in cars with masks on. People are insane. They're scared of their own shadow from 2 million dying. They were probably drooling with popcorn next to them on the couch watching CNN, how everyone's going to die. And they can see now that it's a sham. They can see now that this was overblown. This wasn't anything but a flu. And they're still following these procedures and demanding. We have states across the nation closing down public parks, public pools. Well, then you don't need my tax dollars for that because it's not working and I'm not paying for it. So that's the way it goes. Parks and recreation, you got your stuff shut down. I ain't paying for it. You pay for it yourself. When I'm allowed to enjoy that stuff, you can take money from me. Other than that, I want my money back or you stop taking my money. That's the way it goes. Uh, because it's, it's ridiculous how people so easily submit, supposedly for the greater good. Where is the greater good? Where is this greater good that we don't see? Where is this uh, help that we don't see? Now, I want you to take a listen to this, this question posed to the press secretary. Take a listen. First to mid-May, 50% decline in new hospitalization and under 25,000 cases today. So we are seeing progress. 
Yes. Uh, can, can you tell us what law specifically the president thinks the Secretary of State in Michigan broke by sending out the, the applications? And did the Secretary of State in Georgia also break that law by sending out applications for their primary? Again, I'd, ref I'd reference you to the campaign. These are ballot questions, and I'd reference you to the campaign on that. the president. That's my former employer, my permanent employers, the White House. So, but, thank you. Yes, yes, but, but that, that's not a campaign question. That's the president of the United it's States saying that a, it's that a, a campaign a state question on ballot initiatives that you have and absentee ballots. So I would refer you to the campaign on that front. And I would note to you that many of those ballots um, that are submitted via mail can be fraudulent. I cited to you the bipartisan study. I can read it again. Maybe you weren't paying attention when I read it the first time. So I'll read it again. Um, president Carter, a Democrat, not a Republican, and James Baker concluded that these ballots remain the largest source of potential voter fraud. So if you cast a ballot um, via mail and you do so fraudulently, that would be an illegal act. And I'd point you to that. And for further, I'd point you to my former employer, which is the Trump campaign. Is the president concerned yes. about questions? fraud in Georgia? Yes, sir. Yes, thank you, Kaylee. Um, two questions, if I may. Um, firstly, on airports. Um, the TSA is reportedly considering setting up temperature checks at airports. Given the numbers of people who can be asymptomatic or sick without a fever, um, do you think that's sufficient? And why wasn't more done to have screening at airports sooner, uh, particularly in light of the House oversight investigation that called screening from international hotspots in March limited and stagnant? So the president um, is working working with TSA, he's working with airlines. We want to ensure that our TSA employees are safe, that those who are traveling are safe, um, and he has had those conversations, and we are keeping people safe um, at the TSA and the passengers as well. Over 500 TSA employees have become sick, and six are dead. So again, you know, do you think this has been enough action and soon enough? We've taken action. We're working with the TSA. We're keeping um, America's essential workers safe, um, and we are praying for all of those who have been affected by coronavirus. And, you know, on, on so they want to shut down the airlines. So they're like, hey, out of all these, these workers got sick and died, all of them with underlying conditions, all of them with COVID, not from COVID, but they want to shut down everything. So here they are pushing, yeah, you know, the airline, this, that, TSA, maybe it's too early. <laughs> president's son and business partner, Eric Trump. He recently said of coronavirus that, quote, the Democrats are trying to milk this and predicted it will, quote, magically all of a sudden go away and disappear and everyone will be able to reopen after the election in November. Do you think Eric Trump's comments are accurate and also... A hundred percent. Appropriate. I think we all hope coronavirus goes away. And I think we, as we continue to take the president and his family out of context, um, we should endeavor to um, quote them accuracy. And I think we should all hope that the coronavirus goes. We should all. Okay, why does he have a press pass? This guy's such a loser. Okay, dude, yeah, they are milking it. They want mail-in ballots because they can't win. They want to fraudulently try to gain this election with, you know, bumbling Joe. He doesn't even know who he's running against. He actually said he was running against himself. And you're going to tell me that this guy is uh, smart? This guy can actually win an election on his own? No, he can't. But they're going to be pushing for elections or debates, excuse me, over the internet so they can use, you know, what is it called? Deep fake. Take a listen to the AG of Michigan who was outraged that President Trump didn't wear a face mask in public. Take a listen. General, General Dana Nessel, uh, Attorney General, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. You said uh, right here on CNN that if President Trump doesn't wear a mask, he'll be asked not to return to any undisclosed facilities in your state. Uh, is the president no longer welcome in Michigan. 
Well, I will say, speaking on behalf of my department and my office, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, today's events were uh, extremely disappointing and yet totally predictable. Uh, and I will say that, you know, understanding, of course, that his own doctor, Dr. Fauci, his own medical expert, recommends the wearing of masks in public enclosed spaces. The CDC makes that recommendation. Uh, in Michigan, of course, now that is the law. Uh, and in fact, uh, a court just upheld that, just upheld the governor's orders just hours ago. Uh, and even in Ford, it is their own policy. So the president is like a petulant child uh, who refuses to follow the rules. And I have to say, this is no joke. I mean, you just reported that 93,000 people have died in the United States. He's in a county right now where over 100 people have died. I am 20 minutes away from him in Wayne County where we've had over 2,300 people die. This is not a joke. Uh, and he's conveying the worst possible message to people who cannot afford to be on the receiving end of, of terrible misinformation. And it's very, very concerning. You, you wrote a letter to the president uh, earlier before his visit, uh, and you said this, among other things. Let me put it up on the screen. Anyone who has potentially been recently exposed, including the president of the United States, has not only a legal responsibility, but also a social and moral responsibility to take reasonable precautions to prevent further spread of the virus. Uh, so what message did the president of the United States send to the people of Michigan today, especially the workers there at that Ford plant with his actions today behind the scenes, backstage? He put on a mask. There were no cameras allowed there. But publicly, the whole time he was uh, without a mask. Uh, I think the message he sent is the same message since he first took office in 2017, which is, I don't care about you. I don't care about your health. I don't care about your safety. I don't care about your welfare. I don't care about anyone but myself. And he's continuously sent this message. Um, and what I would say back is that even if you don't have a president of the United States that cares about the residents of this state, fortunately, you have a governor and you have an attorney general who do. And we are going to do everything in our power to protect you, even if you have a president who won't. Because you actually have threatened action against uh, any company or facility, for that matter, that allows the president inside without a mask. So will this Ford plant, for example, uh, face any consequences? Well, I think that we're going to have to have a very serious uh, conversation with Ford in the event that they permitted the president um, to be in publicly enclosed places uh, in violation of the order. They knew exactly what the order was. Um, and if they permitted anyone, even the president of the United States, to defy that order, I think it has serious health consequences potentially to their workers. And this was a lengthy negotiation and discussion between the UAW, uh, the big three auto manufacturers and our governor to ensure that people, if they went back to work, they would be safe. And this was a promise. It was a commitment that was made by the big three to our auto workers who Hold on a second. Their auto workers that they had abandoned, that Ford had left because they didn't have them and they didn't want them. You know, maybe Ford needs to move to a state that embraces, uh, you know, laws and not orders. Who are you to give an order? Where are the courts and the judge that upheld it? Why are they still sitting on a bench? It's unconstitutional to force people to wear something that is a recommendation. And there's tons of research saying that you are not okay. Have you seen 
uh, well, I have. Have you ever been in a laboratory with actual viruses? Do you know what you have to wear to be in there so that you can a whole get up? Walking in there with a mask isn't going to help you. Do you know why doctors wear masks when they uh, conduct surgery? Do you know why? Spit that comes out when you talk. That's why. This is why people wear mouth guards when they're prepping food because if you speak or you breathe, you know, little droplets come out, right? That's what they do. Now, walking around in a store, your droplets aren't going to go that far unless you sneeze or spit on someone. Breathing won't get that far. People are insane because now they even said, oh, you know what? The virus doesn't even live on surfaces. Wait a minute. So then how do you get it? Um, yeah, you just do. You just do. This is ridiculous. Who is this attorney general and how is this? And for the life of (laughs) Eastern Michigan, uh, uh, the U.S. attorney has, uh, what is it? Schneider has been appointed by Barr to deal with situations like this. We have a woman that just said that the president of the United States is not welcome in her state. She said that. And here she is saying, we've given an order. Who the heck are you giving orders? We are American citizens. You cannot order us. That's not the way it works. We didn't vote for this. You said it. You ordered it. There's a difference between an order and a law. Smell test, right? Has to pass the smell test. I mean, even soldiers know that. So citizens who are shareholders, who are the people that run their state, their city, their county, their nation have a say, not just you. You know, this isn't Michigan, Ohio, North Dakota, which is a red state, pure insanity. Like they're throwing people in jail, in jail for not complying in jail. And there's no law, no criminal, a misdemeanor. They're giving you a misdemeanor on an order. How do you make an order? Cause you have corrupt attorney generals. And you know, I said this when the attack comes to president Trump, it won't be those idiots, the crypt keeper, you know, they're all shenaniganging, you know, and you know, grandstanding cause they're covering their own tushes from all the corruption. Okay. That's what they're doing. The problem, and I've said it from the beginning, is never going to be coming straight from Washington. It's going to be the peripheries. And that's your states. If you don't know who is being elected in your state offices, you lose the game. As the president of the United States, your partners in everything are not just the Senate and the House, but the governors, the attorney generals, and the secretaries of state of every single state. Those are the people's names you have to have on a list. So you have all 50 states and you knock down governor, secretary of state, attorney general. You need to know who they are. That's the only way you win this. Because this is where the problem is. Why are the people of these states sitting there? This is where you recall your attorney general. This is where you recall your governor. This is where you recall your secretary of state. This is, and that's something easily done. Because when they're shutting down your business, that's a big problem. This is why the Democrats are now pushing more free money. Everybody loves free money. I love free money. You know, I love free money. So guess what? I'm getting free money. Why should I bother? This is to the lazy ones because it's like, if I fight them, I get no free money and I have no job and I have no business and it's shut down. I mean, Victoria's Secret just announced that they're shutting down. What is it? Uh, 300 and somewhat stores around the nation or was it 3000? I'll get the uh, exact number for you and I'll tweet it out. But why? Well, we know it's obviously has to do with Wexner. 
and the confiscation on that and obviously sealed. So we can't talk about it, but this is happening around the nation. Businesses are closing down because they can't sustain themselves or they can't be sold to someone with bigger pockets. Listen to what else this clown of an attorney general says. Who have been getting sick and who we just opened up these plants again. Just on Monday, Ford already had a few plants that had to close down because people were testing positive again. The last thing we want to see is for this particular plant now to have to close its doors and shutter its doors again because someone may have been infected by the president. Um, And that is a real possibility, but it also sends a message that anybody can do whatever they want because look, the president did it, so why can't... Did you hear what she said? Oh my God, they're going to shut down because the president infected them. Are you kidding? How is she even allowed to say these things? Guys, this is pure insanity. Here we go. June and July are going to be super insane. This is crazy. Wait till you see this summer. Uh, You know, this is where all of you... Uh, just like me are going to be frustrated yesterday. I felt so overwhelmed, you know, with uh, various information that I was gathering. I mean, I, I was, I was on different radio shows and had conversations with different people up until like 11 o'clock at night. And so then I sat down and I was plowing through my emails and I was just like, Oh my God, how is this even happening? How are we allowing this to happen? And you know, all of you out there tweeting and, and saying, and saying, do it more, do it more now that they try to silence break through that fabric because the president needs you write to him talk to him tweet at him find anyone you can and get this information out there we are having foreign countries influence our domestic policies which is a very big deal we have foreign influence in regards to our elections because they are formulating and pushing how we should be voting they are pushing mail-in ballots why is foreign influence allowed in that how are we allowing that that is pure insanity. And it's like, we're asking for it. Like we're asking for them to just take over our nation and get rid of it altogether. So here's where you need to step up to the plate and start talking and make as much noise as you can and push it forward. Now, after this break, we're going to talk a little bit more about foreign policy, but we're going to get into the trenches of the foggy bottom. We're going to talk State Department. We're going to talk foreign service officers. We're going to talk Ukraine and um, what we should be expecting by the end of this month. This is going to give us a little bit of a boost, uh, but it's only going to be short-lived because the next three months are going to be really, really hard. Real news. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So it's Friday. And now we're going to talk about um, uh, the Ukraine, the State Department. And I'm going to demonstrate to you just how the State Department has gotten away with so much. And just how many rhinos we have sitting in the Senate in the House that is so bad. It is so bad, you guys. Like, I can't even. I can't even. It's it's blowing my mind as to how bad this is. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. And 
the effect. Okay, so we got uh, Linick fired, right? All of all of the IGs need to be fired. Because unfortunately, a lot of these positions are presidentially appointed. So when they're appointed by the president that has orchestrated a coup against you, and they say it's abuse of power, which is not breaking the law, well, then the same thing goes for the Trump administration. You can't say, well, President Trump like, abuses his power. And he is under criminal, you know, investigation. But Obama did it, and it's totally okay. So what I wanted to say was we have a huge problem of this abuse of power. And the only way the president can remove every single IG, even the ones that he recommended, gosh darn it, Storch, Storch was recommended by Barack Hussein Obama right during like months before he was out of office, a couple of months before he was out of office, who recommended that the president reappoint him. That person is a snake. We all know who it is, but I'm not going to say it out loud. Uh, so that is something very important. IG Stork, the IG of the NSA, where over collections are still being had, where he's not handing over information because, hey, if Rick Rennell was listening, I tell him, why don't you get that secret network that the IG of the State Department has? Which I, which secret network? Oh, that's right. Not a lot of people know about it. Here you go. There's OIG to be independent. My IT infrastructure lacks independence because it is largely controlled by the department. While we have no evidence that our data has been compromised, the fact that the contents of our network may be accessed by large numbers of department administrators puts us at unnecessary risk and does not reflect best practices on IT independence within the IG community. Second, unlike other IGs, my office is not always afforded the opportunity to investigate allegations of criminal or serious administrative misconduct by department employees. Department components, including the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, are not required to notify OIG of such allegations that come to their attention. If we are not notified, we have no opportunity to investigate. This arrangement is inconsistent with the Inspector General Act and appears to be unique to the department. Relative to being uh, on the same network, can you talk about that in a little more detail and talk about what you're doing to protect your independence and, and whether you need to be totally independent on a separate network? I mean, what, what is your recommendation or what are you doing to, uh, to protect IG's independence? Um, I think that um, your point is well taken to the extent that the department uh, suffers from uh, attacks we suffer from attacks because we're on the same network. Um, we've taken a number of steps uh, since I've been in, in office. Um, first of all, we've asked the department to agree not to come onto our system without, without us without asking permission. And we, we have finally, we've gotten that agreement from the department. Um, but we need more than that because right now, um, we, are, we are sort of in a uh, gated community, if you will, uh, where we rent, we, our IT system is, we rent our IT system and the IT folks of the department have the keys to our IT system. So they really have access, unfettered access to the system if they wanted to. They could read, modify, delete any of our work. We have sensitive grand jury materials. We have so long... How far, I'm sorry to interrupt. How far down in State Department organization um, does that access, is that access provided? Is that throughout the organization? Or well, it's, it's State Department administrators 
um, have access to to our system, and as well as any other. So system. during an investigation, your your files are open to the hierarchy of the State Department? Well, they're not open, but if an administrator wanted to, and again, we don't have evidence of this, if an administrator wanted to, he or she could come onto our system um, with their with their access. That That's the problem. I mean, they come onto our system as it is with security patching and, and all uh, for legitimate reasons. So how is that done in other departments? Well, very at the very basic level, there's there, some de departments differ in the way they handle it. Um, generally, you know, there's, there's, there's a firewall or some sort of form of protection um, against that type of intrusion because an IG just can't uh, protect confidentiality of witnesses and information if there is a possibility. Now, the other way some IGs do it, and this is the way I did it, I did, did it when I was the Inspector General at the Federal Housing Finance Agency, I had a completely separate system and network with my own email address. I was completely off the department's uh, grid. What keeps you from doing that here? Well, I need um, money <laughs> and I need the department's cooperation. Uh, I would like to be completely separate from the department um, to ensure the integrity of our system, but I also need the department uh, to give us uh, access to the same systems that we have now. And I've, I've actually um, broached this topic with the secretary last Friday. Okay, wait, let's rewind that. Let's rewind that. Let's listen to that very, very carefully. Listen to what he said. Wait, Tori, when did he say this? Oh, he said this in 2015 and he got it implemented just in time for the elections. Airwall or some sort of form of protection um, against that type of intrusion because an IG just can't uh, protect confidentiality of witnesses and information if there is a possibility. Now, the other way some IGs do it, and this is the way I did it, I did, did it when I was the Inspector General at the Federal Housing Finance Agency, I had a completely separate system and network with my own email address. I was completely off the department's uh, grid. What? What? Hold on a second. So they have uh, special grids where they have information. So you mean when someone does a FOIA request or you're, they're requesting documents, they're requesting them off the State Department's system, right, Linick? But you have your own independent system. Aha. Uh -huh. I think we just cracked it. We know exactly where all the communications are. We know the communications of the supposed whistleblower complaints. We know the communications on how you decided to take your own career officials and put them on impeachment proceedings. We found how you were communicating with them to give information to Schiff's intelligence committee. We found how you communicated with others because it was a protected system. I think that's the system we need to be pulling records from. So this is very important. How here it is. Hey, I need all your communications that you've done as IG. Give me them from the system. Now take some, but doesn't give the secret IG network. He also admitted the federal housing when he was there, they had their own secret network, which means what? Oh, wait a minute. All the IGs have their own little secret networks. Uh, you want to guess who implemented that? Come on, take a wild guess. <laughs> John Brennan. What keeps you from doing that here? Well, I need um, money <laughs> and I need the department's cooperation. Uh, I would like to be completely separate from the department 
um, to ensure the integrity of our system, but I also need the department uh, to give us uh, access to the same systems that we have now. And I've, I've actually um, broached this topic with the secretary last Friday uh, and Deputy Secretary Higginbottom. Do you have evidence that the State Department's network has been attacked, and does that affect you guys? Uh, there, there, and there has been, there's, there's evidence that has been attacked and it has affected us. I can't really go into details okay. uh, because of the nature of the information. So it's not, there's no evidence he said at first, and now he says, yeah, there is evidence, but I can't go into detail. What? No, he didn't say that. Yes, he did. Listen, at the beginning, here we go. Here we go. Requires OIG to be independent. My IT infrastructure lacks independence because it is largely controlled by the department. While we have no evidence that our data has been compromised, the fact that the contents of our network may be accessed by large numbers of department administrators puts us at unnecessary risk and does not reflect best practices on IT independence within the IG community. Second, unlike other IGs, my office is not always afforded the opportunity to investigate allegations of criminal or serious administrative misconduct by department employees. Department components, including the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, are not required to notify OIG of such allegations that come to their attention. If we are not notified, we have no opportunity to investigate. This arrangement is inconsistent with the Inspector General Act and appears to be unique to the department. Relative to being uh, on the same network, can you talk about that in a little more detail and talk about what you're doing to protect your independence and, and whether you need to be totally independent on a separate network. I mean, what, what is your recommendation or what are you doing to, uh, to protect IG's independence? Um, I think that uh, your point is well taken to the extent that the department uh, suffers from uh, attacks. We suffer from attacks because we're on the same network. Um, we've taken a number of steps uh, since I've been in, in office. Um, first of all, we've asked the department to agree not to come onto our system without without us without asking permission. And we, we have finally, we've gotten that agreement from the department. Um, but we need more than that because right now um, we, are, we are sort of in a uh, gated community, if you will, uh, where we rent, we, our IT system is, we rent our IT system and the IT folks at the department have the keys to our IT system. So they really have access, unfettered access to the system if they wanted to. They could read, modify, delete, any of our work, we have sensitive grand jury materials, we have so long... How far, I'm sorry to interrupt. How far down in State Department organization um, does that access, is that access provided? Is that throughout the organization? Or well, it's, it's State Department administrators um, have access to, to our system and as well as any other so system. So during an investigation, your, your files are open to the hierarchy of the State Department? Well, they're not open, but if an administrator wanted to, and again, we don't have evidence of this, if an administrator wanted to, he or she could come onto our system um, with, their, with their access. That, that's the problem. I mean, they come onto our system as it is with security patching and, and all for legitimate reasons. So how is that done in other departments? Well, very, at the very basic level, there's, there, some de departments differ in the way they handle it. Um, generally, you know, there's, there's, there's a firewall or some sort of form of protection 
um, against that type of intrusion because an IG just can't uh, protect confidentiality of witnesses and information if there is a possibility. Now, the other way some IGs do it, and this is the way I did it, I did, did it when I was the inspector general at the Federal Housing so he hasn't been hacked, but there have been attacks. Then he says he has been hacked. And now he reveals that there are alternate networks. This is how he and Atkinson colluded. This is how he communicated with his own in-house lawyers that he appointed during the impeachment proceedings. This is how he orchestrated attacks into Trump appointees within the State Department. See, you know, it's right there, right under our nose, and we're not seeing it. So it's really, really important important that we get on this. This is where we need to get onto it. These IGs, these horrific IGs. Remember, we have to remember that the insurance policy that the Democrats had was what Barack Hussein Obama did in September of 2016. In September of 2016, after Carlin resigned for being spanked for overcollection and, you know, his violations of the Section 702s, Barack Hussein Obama decided to make the position of the IG of the NSA appointed by the president. That's never been done before, right? The IG for the NSA was always filled by a person that was appointed by the director of the NSA. But during transition, after the elections on November 30th, 2016, this has never happened before because the president would never a month away from leaving office do this. He appointed, he nominated Robert Stork as the first presidentially appointed IG of the NSA. And, the, you know, the Senate never confirmed him. And they never got around to it because they had other things to do like Russia. And so if it can't even get even worse than this, this was their insurance policy because here's who Storch is, right? He's been working for the DOJ for about 24 years, public corruption and all that stuff, right? He was on the anti-terrorism team uh, post 9-11 just for like two years, right? He covered up a lot of stuff. He was the Department of Justice resident legal advisor in the Ukraine for 26 months, he was the chairman of the Council of Inspector Generals. And just so you know, in March or April of 2017, he was actually offered a job, a job from the president of the Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, to join the anti-corruption committee of, the, uh, of his political party. Are you kidding? This is offering an American citizen, the now IG of our NSA, external control of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of the Ukraine. What? So how is he the IG of the NSA right now? How was he even tossed around as a possibility to be considered IG of the NSA? This is a problem. This is a very big problem. So this is how the NSA helped Maria Vanus. This is how the NSA helped what was going on in Ukraine. This is how the NSA were trying to cover up what they were doing. This is ridiculous. President Trump needs to fire all of them. Every single IG must be removed that has been appointed or what had tenure with Barack Hussein Obama. These are not supposed to be career appointments. And if the president appoints them, the president gets to choose. He doesn't get to have leftovers, especially from a president that has now been shown 
to have used every single trick in the book, every single agency to overthrow this administration. He has advocated the overthrowing of this government via his conduits that are sitting in the Senate, in the House, in the Department of Justice, in the NSA, the State Department, and everywhere everywhere else. They all need to be removed. Because if we can't have fair watchdogs, then what's the point of watchdogging? I mean, we should just sit back and let them do what they want. I mean, that's exactly how it's been happening. You can't fight them because the people that you complain to are not on the side of law, transparency, and the people. They're on the side of who fattens their pockets and who, right, is on their little click group. So this is the issue. How did these FISA warrants happen? You think Marie Ivanovich, she just, oh yeah, let me just, mm, let me just get FISA warrants on these citizen journalists. Cause everybody just keeps talking about John Solomon or Sarah Carter. Jeez, man. No, 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 no. There's a lot more people with a lot more connections in the Ukraine than those two journalists that are on that list. So ask yourself, how do you get the right to monitor them. How do you get a warrant entertained, a FISA warrant? How do you do that? Well, that would be flagging because, you know, Yovanovitch worked for the State Department and the flag would go directly on the secret system of the IG of the State Department. So how did he handle that? Oh, yeah, let me guess. Through the IG secret network where they all talk with each other. The one that no one's actually gotten information on. Where's their server? I want to see the secret separate network of the State Department of the IG's office. That's all we need. You give me that hard drive. We've got the treasure trove. That's where you see everything and how much you want to make a bet. You're going to see communications post inauguration from Barack Hussein Obama on there. My source says there is, oh, obviously with his like new email, which I'm pretty sure if, uh, IG Stork was actually honest, he would be turning over to Grinnell. So here's where we subpoena and well, not even subpoena. Just go in there and get it. Mr. Grinnell walk in there and say, I want that server now. Take it, take it and see what you will find on Linux private server. You will find everything you need. You will find all the collusion you want and you will find how they orchestrated this impeachment and worked with the house in order to attempt to overthrow this president. That's where you need to look. Why is nobody looking? I don't know. Maybe because the reporters that supposedly are so on this aren't really on it because they're just pretending to be on it. Or maybe they're like, well, you know, I have to have it from X, Y, Z in order to, no, no, no. What you have to do is look at the facts. This guy set it up in 2015. He asked for money in 2015. He got his money in 2016. He set it up for the elections. It was all a fix. It was all a fix. And you want to see how big of a fix it was? And this is why it was preemptively done. Take a listen to what McCain had said in 2014. As we speak, Vladimir Putin is either planning on or contemplating an invasion of eastern Ukraine. Incredibly, there will be an objection from this side to this legislation when the people of Ukraine are crying out for our help and our assistance. My friend, uh, Senator Brasso, will now be proposing the House Amendment that has not one single sanction in it. What has happened? Where are our priorities? Is the IMF 
no matter whether it's fixed or not fixed with this legislation, more important than the lives of thousands of people? Is that what we're talking about here? You know, I, I will say to my friends who were objecting to this, and there are a number of them on my side, you can call yourself Republicans. That's fine, because that's your voter registration. Don't call yourself Reagan Republicans. Ronald Reagan would never, would never go that, let this, this kind of aggression go unresponded to by the American people. And I, I've been embarrassed before on the floor of the Senate, I will tell the President, but I haven't been embarrassed this way about members of my own party. One of the most proudest aspects I've always felt of our Republican Party and the leadership of Ronald Reagan and others is we stood up for people. We are now faced with the inescapable reality that the Senate is about to enter a recess week having taken no meaningful action to aid the interim government in Kiev. We are left with one option, taking up and passing the House-passed bill the Senate Foreign Relations Committee bill contains provisions related to the International Monetary Fund that are unrelated to the crisis in Ukraine and not needed immediately and must be debated by this body. The senator from Alabama wants to speak, and I can assure him I will not remain on the floor to hear it uh, because I know what the senator from Alabama is going to say, that it has something to do with paying for out of defense spending I'll match my record with the senator of Alabama on defense spending any time, day or night. They don't even need this economic aid today. They have to sign an IMF agreement first. It's weeks before they even need what the senator from Wyoming wished to pass. I mean, why would we pass a bill that does no good as it relates to trying to push Russia back and isolate them well, we have an opportunity right now to pass a bill that shows that we're willing to isolate Russia. We do not need to be passing legislation that's not paid for in this fashion, and I would object to it. Something is very wrong with the foreign policy of the United States of America. And I don't think whether we reform the IMF or not is not going to send a message to Russia. This makes no sense. I would challenge any of my friends here to stand up here and explain why a sensible response to what Russia has done is to expand Russia's influence in the IMF and to diminish America's influence. And you know the most ridiculous thing about all of this is that the majority leader has, has, has filed cloture. We have well over 60 votes, so we're going to be back in about 11 or 12 days, whatever it is. Cloture will have been expired. It's well over 60 votes, and we will pass this. Yeah, I mean, we got to protect the Ukraine, got to protect our investments, right? This is why, you know, Bumbling Joe has pretty much <laughs> uh, gotten Kiev Klobuchar as his uh, supposed running mate. Uh, you know, obviously, he thinks that he's running against himself, as he said on, uh, you know, uh TV. Uh, that was in, incredible how he said that. And, you know, he's just bumbling everywhere. He was telling someone he's not black. Like, how does he know who's, I, I mean, come on, guys. This is all about Ukraine. This is all about money. This is all about the center of this deep state globalist cabal. And you know what? And you know what? All of you out there, uh, you know, that, subs that subscribe to many news outlets and those of you that subscribe to Q, 
as well should be aware that the ones that are telling you to take control are the ones you should be listening to because you have to make it happen. You have to be the voice. It's not just, you know, uh, depending on five people. The president is surrounded by snakes. He's got people in there working in the White House right now, right now, working in the White House that are actively engaged in activities to remove him from that seat. He's got him. He's got them in his White House, in his White House. And here we are, you know, still talking about it. Still talking about it rather than just clean house. I've sat down to the janitor. You cannot have a State Department that represents your foreign policy that doesn't believe in America first. I'll see you all after this break. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. Every decision will be made to benefit American workers and American families. America will start winning again, winning like never before. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. After nearly four years, my family's nightmare is finally over. We couldn't have survived this without the love and support of the millions of patriots around the world. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. Hi, I'm Laura Loomer, and I'm running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District. Wouldn't it be horrible if we lived in a nation where journalists were silenced just because they confronted the political and media elite? You might think that could never happen in America, but it did. And to me. For confronting people like Hillary Clinton on her corruption and Ilhan Omar for her ties to radical Islamic terror groups, I have been banned on pretty much every single social media platform. And if that doesn't sound extreme enough, I'm also banned on Uber and Lyft. I know, I cannot understand that last one either. When this all happened to me, I contacted the media and members of Congress. I asked them for help. I kept calling, I kept emailing, but I never received a reply. And that's when it hit me. I'm a well-known journalist who has the phone numbers of the most powerful people in politics and media, yet I couldn't get any assistance. What on earth would the average American do if the same thing happened to them? I realized then that if I wanted to see change, that I would need to run for office. The American people deserve representation that listens to and acts on their concerns. So here I am, running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District, because the American people deserve a voice and a representative who, like President Trump, will keep the promises they make and speak up loudly and clearly for that silent majority.
All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So uh, we heard McCain talking about Ukraine. You heard Linick talk about his secret server that he needs. Now I want you to hear what they had to say about the USAID programs. Why do I say this? Anne Calvaresi-Barr. She's the inspector general for USAID. She has her own server, too, by the way, uh, thanks to Linick. I want you guys to listen to what she has to say in regards to um, uh, the state uh, foreign operations and related programs. This was a House Appropriations meeting last year uh, in July. I want you to listen carefully to what she says here. And according to an October 2018 advisory published by our office, this contract experienced major delays in the delivery of health commodities and was exposed to vulnerabilities related to commodity tracking, supply chain, data access, reporting, commodity inventory access, labeling, and other issues. Um, at the time of the memo's publication, your office was encouraged by increased engagement between the Bureau and Chemonix. So wanted to find out what types of safeguards might be in place to ensure that this doesn't uh, happen again. Um, do you believe that the aggressive oversight required over contracts of this size is possible? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. This is a very, very large contract at 9.5 billion and being an ID, IQ um, at that. Um, let, let, let me begin by pointing to uh, some of the risks that we found in that realm of that contract and the work which is on the global health supply chain in Africa. Um, there we have uncovered a number of risks with regard to um, the logistics, as we know, that's happening with those commodities uh, in Africa, the storage, the facilities of those, the record keeping of those. Our work has resulted in, as a result of weaknesses in the global health supply chain, has resulted in 41 arrests, 30 indictments, and, um, and has uh, prompted uh, the Global Health Bureau to have a third party monitor over uh, overseeing uh, the programming for uh, health supply commodities within Africa. Our work spanned eight countries. So that raised an eyebrow, right? The investigation's work points to the effect of something gone wrong. That's the effect. Now my office is engaged in trying to figure out why is that happening? What are the root causes of it? So you may be uh, pleased to hear that we are looking at, we're doing two audits going forward. One is we are looking back at the contract and how it was awarded. So that's the first audit. The second audit that we're doing is because of those weaknesses that we've uncovered in the supply chain, we are following up to look at how have those weaknesses been addressed, what's being done different from USAID's perspective in terms of its oversight of the contract and that work. But we also have to look to, and it gets to a, an issue we discussed earlier about capacity of some of these host uh, countries. So I don't want to point the picture that all these problems that we found necessarily rely or lie uh, with commonics. But when you're transferring funds and supplies that are very, very needy and very valuable, particularly in third world countries, you need to make sure that the host government has the capacity to receive them, to do their own inventory controls, has, 
has strong internal controls. So when we look at this and we dissect this, we're going to look at the contract and how it was awarded, because we too have concerns about award management at USAID, and we're going to peel that onion back. But secondly, we're going to look at the weaknesses that we found through our investigations, which are, you know, eight countries. And again, those numbers are 41 arrests, 30 indictments, and there's more that go on as a result of that. We're going to look at how well those weaknesses are being addressed in terms of local capacity, uh, the implementer's responsibility, as well as USAID's effectiveness at overseeing those. Report and thank you for addressing the issue, Mr. Fortenberry. Thank you, Madam Chair, and I appreciate your willingness to hold this important hearing. And um, thank you for joining us. I'm going to make some broad comments that I can apply, uh, have multiple levels of application. I hope my colleagues will agree. I think these hearings really ought to start with some type of schematic, map, diagram of your overall authorities drilled down into agency and programmatic uh, levels. Now, at USAID and state, that might fill this wall over here, but it will make it uh, take these important discussions, but can tend to be abstract or so narrow that they are not generalizable to the bigger principles that we ultimately have to legislate around, which are policy perspectives, mission ideals. And in that regard, I want to ask you, Ms. Barr, the, regarding uh, two questions. Regarding the reform plans that are underway at USAID, one particular point is this, that there is a, 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 a temp, an attempt to implement a new risk management approach uh, that will look at the most significant impact, what programs are, have the most significant impact, in other words, how well foreign assistance actually works under certain scenarios. What are the templates? That, to me, is the most important question here. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I want to turn to the migration of the Overseas Private Investment mm -hmm. Corporation to the new International Development Finance Corporation and hear your perspective on how that's going. With particularly one question, and I think, Madam, Madam Chair, early, at an earlier hearing, you tasked me with this. And I think it's very important. The equity investment question that is developing at the International Finance Development Corporation, how we are going to leverage our limited funds potentially into equity investments with private sector partner to achieve the very goals of the earlier OPIC mission in a more substantial way. Okay. Are you are – you, are you familiar with what I'm talking about there? I am. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Um, thank you. Let me, let me begin with uh, sort of enterprise risk management and, and the importance of that. And it has uh, a, a couple of different legs <laughs> to that stool, right? So when you think about risk management, you have to think about when you're investing in these countries and for the most part where USAID space is. We're going to be investing in countries that we know might not have the strongest foundation from a financial internal control procurement or legal perspective. So, so we tend to measure outcomes by how much money we've spent and what our intention is. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize what you're saying, that the risk factors are compounded given the nature of certain yes. um, uh, weaknesses of mm -hmm. systems in other places. It's the very point of the assistance in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we have to tolerate.
So he's saying, did you guys hear that? I, I, I wanted to play it uninterrupted. But what they're telling you is, is that they give money to places that have corrupt governments because supposedly they're helping them. When in fact, what it does is it provides uh, the ability for them uh, to drain out money and make it disappear. That's basically what happens. But we know this. Now, breaking just a little while ago, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Adam Schiff sent a letter uh, yesterday to Rick Grinnell. And um, he says, consistent with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, Vice Chairman Mark Warner's May 20th, 2020 letter to you, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, also requests that you produce the intelligence reports and additional information pertaining to your May 8 declassification and May 13 release to Senators Ron Johnson and Charles Grassley. Of the identities of executive branch officials who lawfully submitted, who lawfully, listen to that, lawfully submitted U.S. person identity requests to better understand specific intelligence reports containing masked U.S. person information. The intelligence community protects the identities of Americans that are referenced in intelligence obtained by from lawful collection against authorized foreign targets that it disseminates to its customers through intelligence reports. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> this was all lawful. OK, so um, I just wanted to say he said, as detailed in the charging documents and special counsel's uh, Robert Mueller's report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. During this time frame, the IC also became aware of Lieutenant General Flynn's communication with Russian. Okay, so he's beating this dead horse. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Now, let's just get to the to the end part of it. He says to ensure transparency, uh, he requests that that Rick Grinnell or his successor declassify and make publicly available any intelligence report or transcript concerning conversations between Lieutenant General Flynn and former Russian ambassador Kislyak. These communications have been the subject of a thorough law enforcement investigation and criminal proceedings, and no national security rationale remains to suppress these records on classification grounds. First of all, Rick Grinnell doesn't have that. They do. So the intelligence community didn't get any transcripts of the calls. They did. The intelligence community didn't request it. The former executive branch did. The State Department did. And obviously it's in the House of the Intelligence Committee. Want to know how many FISA warrants are out there? Tons. You only know about four. Three that you know. One that you know is sealed. When there's tons more, like I said a couple days ago. Tons more. How do we do it? Let's not drop the ball again, man. We failed well, I'm air quoting failed to get the DNC server, right? Well, let's not fail to get these secret IG servers because you're going to find everything you need. Next request that Schiff puts forward is produced to the committee in full, consistent with whatever law he picked out, the underlying intelligence reports that were the subject of U.S. person identity requests revealed in your General Nakasone May 4th, 2020 memorandum to you, as well as the rationale for your decision to request and then declassify the list of... A so he wants to know why he declassified it and you shouldn't have you should have given them warning 
<laughs> okay, number three, declassify and make publicly available with appropriate redactions to protect sensitive sources and methods these same underlying intelligence reports so that the public can understand why so many U.S. officials from across the government independently sought to learn the identity of a masked American who would turn out to be Lieutenant General Flynn, who was communicating with or referenced by lawful targets of foreign intelligence collection. Again, secret servers, secret servers, secret networks. All we need to do is get those. Because every time the uh, IG of the intelligence community says, or the FBI say, hey, I'd like to see all communications of the Inspector General, Steve Linick, guess what they're going to get? Oh, here you go. And it's from the State Department server. But they could say, no, we want it from the private IG network. We want everything. Just give me the server. It's independent. It's by itself. And you know where he learned that trick? Hillary Clinton. Because they did it a lot on federal housing back in the day when they set that up. You remember Wall Street crash, mortgages, Fannie Mae. That's why they had their own server. This is how they made money. They're not stupid. I mean, Brennan is a sneaky little one. And he made sure that he gave all the tricks in the book. Now, another thing that I had talked about that, you know, to my surprise, yesterday I brought it up in a conversation that I was having, was the High uh, Value Intelligence Group. So uh, two years ago when I wrote an article for Big League Politics uh, mentioning that, um, there was a plethora of publicly available information of it, uh, demonstrating how Barack Hussein Obama in 2009 created a special group that no one knew who was part of that did all his research and, and, you know, uh, you know, digging up information. I mean, president Trump should have one. I'd totally join that group. Right. Um, that was all about driving his, um, uh, uh, how, how did he? How did he word it? How did Brennan put it together? Because he wasn't CIA director there; he was his um, uh, advisor. Um, it's like the Obama Agenda Group. I was actually um, asked if I wanted to join that group um, when I was at the CDC, and I had been approached to help with the Affordable Care Act. So I was asked, yeah, "We'd need you to do some research and put together profiles." It's like, uh, no. So. It, this group was completely secret. Uh, nobody knew about it. Everybody reported to uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Now, in 2010, the Inspector General, um, uh, it wasn't the Inspector General, the ODNI, Blair, uh, you know, we had all this stuff with these terrorists and Al-Qaeda and everything. He slipped during an interview and said, well, you know, this terrorist was interviewed by the high-value intelligence group of Barack Hussein Obama. And it's a group that only, you know, answers to him and they talk to all the terrorists and all these other foreign officials and stuff off the record. And so... Uh, you know, in that same article, the only surviving one that I found, because if you actually put HVIG now to look, it's called High Value Detainee Group or something like that. It's totally wrong. Now, Peter Strzok was also part of it, but you know who was part of that group? Just so you understand. And then you could be like, well, wait a minute. All those names sound super duper familiar, Tori. Who is it? That was part of it. Well, I'll tell you. Members, when the charter was actually established in 20, late 2010, because Blair slipped, who then got fired for slipping, right? A charter was created and the Senate knew about it. And the members front-facing were, and I quote, Robert Mueller, James Comey, 
Christopher Ray, H.R. McMaster, Rod Rosenstein, Andrew McCabe, and David Cuthbertson. Wow. Two people still within the FBI that shouldn't be, and that's Christopher Ray and Cuthbertson. So uh, all these people had worked together. James Comey wasn't uh, FBI director when it was created. No, he was working. What What did he say? He was working at Lockheed, whatever he said. Uh, no, but he was also advising the president of the United States as a private citizen because he, every president has like this dark cabinet where he like sticks people in the basement that nobody knows who they are and they just put together information and give that information that they get that's publicly available to people that actually have clearances to jump off on. Why hasn't he done that? Explain. Why hasn't he done that? Why hasn't he collected these outstanding citizen journalists that are out there right now? Why hasn't he done that? I mean, yeah, we have Q, right? Putting out, putting out. But what about actually having someone physically there that nobody, the media is not allowed to, that's your presidential privy to create it. I mean, Barack Hussein Obama did it. He did it, but the only problem was is that Blair slipped up that they were talking with terrorists. First of all, if you're advising the president is high-value intelligence group where you guys get together and talk about intelligence topics or breach of you know security or leaking, lying, and foreign policy stuff where you're just chucking, you know, you know, pretty much talking, having coffee over these things. Yeah, maybe we need to do this. I don't know about this, but did you see the report on this? Everyone in their own area of expertise. That's not, you don't use an Al-Qaeda leader and talk to him because, see, what people don't seem to understand is that Barack Hussein Obama was negotiating with these leaders. He was funding and training these leaders. He was trying to make the mercenaries work for him. He failed, obviously, because, you know, he failed because one thing that we have to understand is that mercenaries always go to the highest bidder. Now, speaking of mercenaries going to the highest bidder, I want you guys to listen to the former uh, inspector general of the State Department that left, who was actually investigating things. Wait, just listen to what happened. And you're going to be like, wait a minute, when did this happen? And I'm going to tell you now, this happened 13 years ago. Listen carefully. Chairman, it's good to see you. And um, I note that uh, two very interesting things that you speak very much about deconflicting, so you have a sensitivity to conflicts, obviously. And second, you I note that after the chairman asked you, I mean, before the chairman asked you questions, but after your statement, you gave us some additional information about your brother, Buzzy Krungard. And what you said, that to your knowledge, he had no financial interest and he did not sit on the board of Blackwater. Is that correct? Well, let's, let's, let's look at that real quickly. One of the biggest scandals to hit the State Department in recent memory has been the lack of accountability for the Blackwater USA. Last month, Secretary of State testified before this committee that for more than four years there's been a hole in the law that allows Blackwater to escape criminal liability for killing innocent Iraqi civilians. Just today, papers reported that federal agents investigating the September 16th episode in which Blackwater security personnel shot and killed 17 Iraqi civilians have found that at least 14 of the shootings were unjustified and violated deadly force rules in effect for security contractors in Iraq. 
Okay, so where are we going with this? Eric Prince, right back in the middle. And, uh, you know, FSG Group, which is funded by China, by the way. Um, listen to it. This is like um, more... Um, this is very important. And this is uh, Elijah Cummings, who uh, is no longer with us on this plane, uh, asking him questions. But then you just, just need to pause and listen. Remember, this IG was taken out for doing his job. Okay. He was doing his job. This is before Barack Hussein Obama came in. This was all orchestrated by Brennan. I want you to listen carefully because this is going to be very important coming soon. Your role as inspector general is to investigate waste, fraud, abuse in the State Department. But your office has not completed any investigations into Blackwater activities, although there is a Justice Department investigation underway. Uh, you've taken several unorthodox steps that delayed or impeded that investigation, such as requiring a personal briefing from the Justice Department and requiring all investigative documents to go through your Congressional Affairs Director. I'm trying to understand why you are so reticent about investigating Blackwater. I would like to show you a letter the committee obtained and ask you to comment on it. This letter was sent from Eric Prince, the CEO and founder of Blackwater. He showed that letter on July 26, 2007. Mr. Prince sent this letter to Alvin uh, Buzzy Krongard, your, your brother. The letter invites him to serve on Blackwater's Worldwide Advisory Board. Uh, this is what Mr. Prince says. He says, and this is Mr. Prince to your brother, the one that you said isn't involved with Blackwater. He says, being a member of the Blackwater Worldwide Advisory Board will provide you with a stellar opportunity to continue to support security, peace, and freedom. Your experience and insight would be ideal to help our team determine where we are and where we are going. Mr. Prince's letter goes on to explain that the main purpose of the board is to provide leadership advice about the path the company should follow. Now, here's the second document. This is a September 5th email that Eric Prince sent to your brother. It says, quote, welcome and thank you for accepting the invitation to be a member of the board. My question is this. Did you know that your brother Bussy Krengard is on Blackwater's advisory board? Sir, I dispute that. As far as I know, that is not correct. This is, I, I would, you asked me to comment on this letter. Yeah. Sir, my brother served honorably as a captain in the United States Marine Corps. He served as the executive director of the CIA. He has been involved in a lot of activities involving security. So it's no surprise that someone like Eric Prince would invite him to continue to support security, peace, and freedom. There is nothing in here that suggests that my brother accepted this July 26 invitation. What you have now shown me is an email from Eric Prince to a large number of people that I assume were all uh, people who received this. I don't see anything in here that suggests my brother accepted or attended, and as far as I know, he did neither. Well, let me go on then, uh, because I do think the letter indicates that he did accept. But, Mr. Brangard, this is one of the most high-profile issues facing the State Department. And your testimony today is that you didn't, didn't know your own brother is on the Blackwater's board. 
this is blackmail. So this was a letter. He wasn't on the board. He was given a letter to join the board. This is how they entrap people. So uh, this is a really big deal because we did see Eric Prince come in in Syria. We know that Mark Straw uh, ushered that in. And now that he's sitting in a higher position in the State Department, one has to question, Pompeo, what the heck are you doing? I know you're busy, but you know, you're, you're, where are your galoshes up to your neck and you can't see around you? You're covered by swamp. Mark Straw was on the NS, he was NSE, he was Rhodes's sidekick during the Obama White House, and he has just been promoted to a higher position in the State Department. This is a very big problem because the State Department pretty much is the face of our foreign policy. So everything that happens from coronavirus to nukes has to be rooted at the State Department. So, you know, a lot of people will argue that we have the wrong person in the State Department. Now, I can see that um, Pompeo has doublespeak. You know, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth, which is fine. It's all called, you know, optics. And I get it because he says and does different. I totally get it. And I'm on board with that because that's called negotiating. That's called, you know, uh, you know, uh, walking that tightrope. But what we have to do is get serious and we can't let them get away or stonewall us. We can't have any more Perkins Coy, uh, you know, blocking of servers. The note to that is Rick Rennell, go get IG Linux secret independent network and you will find the treasure trove. On that note, God bless everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful Memorial weekend and I'll see you on Monday. God bless from all of us here at Red State.